Uh, what a good morning. So good to be together. Um, I've been told, can we squeeze towards the middle? There are some people who are looking for some seats, and it's most convenient if they can go to the outside. So if you could squeeze towards the middle, we would really appreciate that. Good? Thank you all so, so much. So let me ask you a question. How many of y'all have ever traveled overseas or to a foreign country? Raise your hand. Oh, wow, quite a bit. If, how many of you have ever been to Austin? Okay, same thing, same thing. For those of you who have traveled to different places, you know that there's a certain etiquette when you visit a different culture. Because some of the things that might be very normal to us could actually be offensive to them. For example, if you uh, were to visit uh, many of the Middle Eastern countries, if you eat with your left hand, whether it's to hold a drink or to hold a piece of bread, it can be very offensive to them. And the reason is because the left hand for them is used to take care of personal hygiene. So if you use that hand at a meal, it can be highly inappropriate. Or, or for us, in a social setting, it's not uncommon for us to put our hands in our pockets. I, I do it all the time because I'm insecure. I don't know what to do, to do with my hands. I feel comfortable when they're in my pockets. But in many places in Japan or Korea, if you put your hand in your pocket, it's a sign of arrogance. It's a gesture that would be considered disrespectful in that culture. So you have to be careful Not to assume that what is normal to you is just as acceptable to them. In fact, the best way to enter into a a different culture is with an attitude of respect. You don't want to be that arrogant American who doesn't care what anybody else thinks, especially if you're a Christian, because you just might lose the opportunity to have an effective witness. Instead, it's best to be humble and peaceable, to actually learn about their culture, and when it's appropriate, join in that tradition. So for example, if you go to a home where they remove their shoes when they enter the house, it's probably good that you do the same thing out of respect for them. Because as a visitor, it's important to gain the respect of your neighbor without compromising your own identity and convictions in the process. And I believe that's precisely the heart that Peter has in our passage this morning. He is basically instructing the Christians in his audience, and and therefore us as well, to have kind of a, a visitor mentality in the world in which we live. Maintaining a healthy relationship with our neighbors without compromising our identity as followers of Christ. He wants us to live appropriately in a pagan society, being committed to what's right in a world that's gone wrong. And there's this balance, and we know it's a tension between the traditions that we should embrace and the practices that we should avoid. I think it's a really important question to think about what we talked about last week and to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a royal priesthood of a holy nation when we live within a pagan society? What does that look like? Well, that's the question that Peter's going to answer this morning. 
And as he does, what he directs towards his audience, I promise you, applies directly to you and I. So let's please pay attention to what he has to say. Let's pray before we open our passage. Lord, we just ask that even as we come to your word, we do so with a humble heart, with deep respect and honor for the authority of your word spoken by you through your spirit to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be submissive to the ways that you lead and teach us this morning, corporately as a church, but there will be things individually in our own hearts that you will prompt by your spirit and invite us to walk in. Lord, would you give us the courage, the honor, and the respect of who you are and what you've done to willfully follow you in those places. Work mightily in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Love for you to follow along with me. We're going to pick up where we left off last in verse 11. Where Peter continues his letter and he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I've mentioned this before, but let me remind you again in his letter so far, Peter has talked to us about the importance of our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's how he started. And then he moved from there to the importance of our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And then last week, he talked about our identity as a new covenant community in Christ. And so really, everything up to this point has focused on on the redemptive work that God is doing inside of us, whether that's individually or corporately as a church family. But now I want you to notice that Peter shifts his attention to how these truths that are redemptive in our lives begin to impact those around us. In fact, the remainder of this letter, for the most part, looks at how we live out our Christian faith in a non-Christian world. He'll explain what it means to be a royal priesthood in the midst of a pagan society. And you'll notice, as we see here in verse 11, there seems to be a sense of urgency as he begins this section of his letter. He says, Beloved, So brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved, I urge you, I admonish you, I implore you. In some sense, he's saying, I beg you, listen to how to live as aliens and strangers, which connects us to what I was saying earlier. This is the conduct that we should have as visitors in a foreign culture. Because as Christians, we're citizens of heaven, right? This world is not our home. As we said in recent weeks, we are pilgrims who are just passing through. But while we are here, we are called to flourish in the purpose we were made to fulfill. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. 
And Peter reminds us here as he begins this section that we cannot impact those around us unless we look with honesty and sincerity at what is happening within us. He says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Because not only are we in a foreign country, we are actually living in enemy territory. Our life, this side of heaven, is a spiritual battle. This is why Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Because even though we seek to follow Christ, we are not immune to fleshly desires, especially in a world where these desires are increasingly socially acceptable. And it's easy. It's easy for everyone in this room to become desensitized to the worldly practices that conflict with biblical values. That's why Peter reminds, or Paul reminds his audience in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can't control what is happening around us, but we absolutely have responsibility for what is happening within us. Galatians 5.16 reminds us, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So, in essence, winning the spiritual, begat, the, the spiritual battle begins with a heart of surrender. It's a willful decision to rely on the Spirit instead of pridefully trying to manage sin on our own. It's a big part of what we talk about in the Regen ministry because it's not uncommon for people to sign up to come to Regen in order to learn the 12-step strategy for overcoming sin in their lives. And from day one, all the way through, we are reminded over and over again, it is not about a strategy. It is all about a Savior. Because walking in fellowship with Christ is where we ultimately find freedom from sin that so easily entangles all of us. As I've said before, it's not about trying to sin less. It's absolutely all about learning to love Jesus more. Because what is happening inside us will always impact those around us. So Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And what he's trying to communicate here is don't lose sight of the impact you are having on those who are around you who don't know Christ. Because whether we realize it or not, and you've probably recognized this, people always pay more attention to the stranger. Am I right? Don't you recognize fairly readily when someone new walks into the room? People always pay more attention to the stranger. And in a world that's not our home, guess what? We're the stranger. And like most strangers, we are often met with suspicion. Assuming that 
in essence, strangers are up to, to no good unless we prove them differently. That, that's just the reality. So last week we talked about how the audience that Peter was writing to, that these Christians were seen as social deviants who were a danger to the common good of society. And, and the reason was is, is they were being slandered for uh, interrupting the progress of society by upholding biblical truth. But Peter here tells them to silence the opposition by making a positive impact in the world. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 5.16 when he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because as we look at this, I want us to just be real honest with ourselves and admit to the fact that many times Christians can be some of the most critical people with what is happening in our world today. It's easy for us to sit on the sidelines and point out all the problems with society. But Peter is speaking to those people, and he's telling us, it's time for you to get in the game and be a part of the solution, instead of always sitting on the sideline, pointing out all the problems. Silencing the opposition by giving them something to commend. You know, this is the very same idea behind the words that God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah when the Israelites were held captive in Babylon. He says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, this is God speaking. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I believe Peter is saying exactly the same thing in hopes that their conduct in this case, will ultimately lead people to Christ. He says, glorifying God in the day of visitation. That day of visitation is actually pointing to the day of Christ's return, which for those who don't know Christ will be a day of judgment. For those who do will be a, a day of redemption. As Peter's saying, listen, we want to live in such a way that our faith impacts another person's life who might in fact put their faith in Christ. Have that kind of impact on the world around us. Listen to how he goes on to explain in verse 13. Here's some examples. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, I think it's important as we read these verses to remember the context of the audience and the world in which they lived in. Because Rome was a pagan society where they had a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Absolute power was given to only one person the emperor, who in fact was worshipped as a god as well. He would appoint governors, very often based on social status or wealth rather than merit. 
The empire as a whole, let's not forget, was established through military conquest. And, and there was an ongoing military presence to maintain the peace. Citizens were expected to live loyal to the empire and live according to Roman law. Now, we know within that there was some liberty given for people to, to practice their own religions, but the ultimate authority always had to be given to the king or the, the emperor. It was a system undeniably filled with corruption, and compliance was forcefully mandated. Okay, so not a great situation to live in, especially if you're a Christian. Because Rome viewed the Christian community, which was a newly developing part of their society, with a great level of suspicion. One Roman historian described the Christian community as a dangerous superstition. He goes on to say that Christians are a race detested for their evil practices, which was simply a condemnation for Christians not following the status quo of society. That was the evildoers. They were just not following the social norm. So within that context, Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the king, no matter how corrupt he may be, or the governors he appoints, whether they use their wealth, which they often did, to bribe their way into that position or not. You see, most of these men were not worthy of respect. That's the facts. They were not worthy of respect, and yet Peter calls on Christians to treat them with honor. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he writes, every person is to be subject to governing authorities. For listen to this. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, instead of complaining for everything the government is doing wrong, Peter is telling Christians to earn their praise by doing what is right. And I believe this goes beyond the, the private behavior in our homes. I think it includes public actions that make a positive impact on society. This goes back to Jeremiah's command to seek the welfare of the city. So, instead of lobbying for new laws, expecting the government to make all the changes, Christians should get involved, finding ways to personally be a part of the solution. Put aside our own personal rights in an effort to serve the needs of someone else is more important than our own. And I find it interesting that, that Peter's not instructing the, the Christian community to live in isolation. He's not telling them to, to stay out of trouble by withdrawing from society. It's actually just the opposite. He's telling them to engage, silencing their opponents by giving them something to commend, knowing that our actions always speak louder than our words. Look how he finishes up in verse 17. 
It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Or excuse me, 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And I think this is where Peter is in trying to, to provide some important clarification. Because we live in a world where freedom is highly valued. But at the end of the day, we ultimately are servants of God and we submit to his authority in our lives. Our freedom in Christ comes with a responsibility to honor God. Living in this world in a way that brings him glory and not shame. Knowing that, listen, there are ideals and behaviors that are socially acceptable. And, and we have all the freedom in the world to go along with the status quo. But our devotion to Christ often compels us to say no. To purposefully limit our freedom in order to faithfully follow Christ. Which doesn't mean that the Christian life is about following a list of rules. Our behavior is not dictated by legalistic adherence to a strict code of conduct. Because not only have we been liberated from the power of sin's control, we have also been set free from the need to earn God's favor. Because you see, we are righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. This is all about what he has done for us and not what we must do for him. It is our identity in Christ that dictates our decisions. Walking by the power of the Spirit, guided by the truth of God's word. So Christians absolutely have the freedom to do what they want, but they rely on the Spirit to do what is right. We have the freedom to do what we want. We rely on the Spirit to do what is right. Resisting selfish desires that lead to sin, following the Spirit's lead in order to walk in God's will. And then Peter kind of closes with an important clarification there in verse 17. And calling on Christians to honor all people, treating them with the dignity and respect that they deserve, regardless, don't miss this, of their social status, their lifestyle choice, their political affiliation, because all humanity to a person has been created in the image of God. And it is not our job to judge demean or discredit another human being. Reminds me of this story many of you probably know of a woman named Rosario Butterfield. She was a radical feminist, proudly embraced the lesbian lifestyle. She stood strongly against Christianity primarily because of how strongly Christianity stood against her. And she would go with her friends and they would be a, a part of a a gay pride parade, there would always be Christians with signs telling her and her friends that they were all going to hell and deserved every minute of it. Because of this, Rosario had no desire to darken the door of a church until she met a man by the name of Ken Smith and his wife who brought the church to her 
because they invited her into her home. They made the effort to get to know her and, and her friends. The goal was not to get Rosario in the church. The goal was to bring the church to Rosario. And over time, their friendship became a safe place. And this family led Rosario to a faith in Christ where she left her lesbian lifestyle and has become one of the most powerful influences in Christian community today because of her testimony. And this transformation took place simply because she was treated with dignity and respect as a fellow human being. Peter says, honor all people. All means all. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And I want you to notice the distinction here. As visitors in a foreign country, as we've been talking about, we need to have this visitor mentality. We want to engage our neighbor in a winsome way. We honor all people. But the lifeblood of our existence is found in Christian community. We love the brotherhood. There is a special bond between fellow believers. It's why Paul writes in Romans 12, 10, and he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In the same way, we're called to honor the king, but to fear the Lord. As we've already talked about, rulers have been placed into their positions of power and influence by God. And so we should respect the people to whom God has given that authority. But we fear the Lord because he is the ultimate authority over our lives. That's why we don't rely on the government to find peace and security. We don't depend on lawmakers to make the world a better place. We look to the Lord. According to Colossians 1.17, who is before all things and in him all things hold together knowing that his purpose in the world is fulfilled through us, his royal priesthood. And Peter reminds us, as he did in the very beginning, in order to make an impact on those around us, it has to begin with what is happening within us. Because what is happening in our heart has and always will impact what we do with our lives. And so based on that truth and, and what we've looked at in our passage this morning, I want you to consider three questions, and I would encourage you to write these down and just think on them through the week, okay? The first question is this. Where do I need to limit my freedom in order to more faithfully follow Christ? It's a really important question. Where do I need to limit my freedom in order to more faithfully follow Christ? Because we all know we live in a world with very few limitations, right? We can spend all day on our phone. We can be plugged into every social media platform we can find. We can have unlimited supply of news and information any time of the day or night. We can get lost in a multitude of mindless games with an endless supply of distractions. But maybe. Maybe we need to limit our freedom to be constantly occupied in order to carve out time to simply be still. 
and I've thought about this week because I've been convicted of this in my own life, how easy it is when I have downtime to just pick up my phone and start scrolling on something. And I think it has less to do, as I've thought through this for my life personally, it has less to do with what I'm consuming and more to do with how it is rewiring my brain. Training me to take in short sound bites of information so that it is increasingly difficult to be still for extended periods of time. That is not healthy. The Bible actually tells us, be still and know that I am God. Which is simply not possible if we suffer from a hurried soul. And if you think about it, what a great strategy of the enemy. He knows. He knows that what is happening is within us is how we impact the world around us. So what a great place to start with what is in us to make us addicted to activity, productivity. I think Dallas Willard is absolutely right when he says, Hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day. He says you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, and I agree. To walk with Jesus is to walk in a slow, unhurried pace. So how might you need to limit your freedom in order to more faithfully follow Christ? Second question is this. How can I be a safe place for someone who feels forsaken or condemned? How can I be a safe place for someone who feels forsaken or condemned? Because we need to accept the fact that if we're a Christian and people are not, they expect us to respond in a certain way. And a lot of times they'll seek to provoke that response, something along the lines of, oh, so you're a Christian, so I guess that means you hate gay people, right? I mean, that, that's going to be an assumption based on what is seen in the world today. But how can, you resp- how can you surprise them by creating a safe place for them? Which may begin with just the willingness to initiate a conversation. How many of y'all have seen the progressive commercials? And there's the one where, those are my favorite commercials. There's the one where the guy with the blue hair, don't say anything, don't say, blue hair, blue hair. So whether they have blue hair or tattoos or strange piercings, then maybe you just start by figuring out something about who they are as a person and just initiate a conversation. Because sometimes a simple act of kindness is enough to create a safe space. Peter reminds us, we silence the opposition by giving them something to commend, commend, by doing something different than what they expected you to do. They don't expect you to say anything. But maybe you need to say something. How can you create a safe place by simply initiating a conversation? Last one. This one may be the hardest one. How can you contribute to something good in society instead of always complaining about everything that's wrong in the world? Church, we need to hear this. 
How can you create something good in society instead of always complaining about everything that's wrong in the world? But I think it's so easy for us to withdraw as a Christian community, pointing our fingers at all the problems instead of being a part of the solutions. And listen, I know we are not going to solve world hunger. Okay, that's not the point. But why don't we start with taking care of the needy in our own community? I mean, I'm glad we did the supplies for, for Lubbock Impact, and I'm glad people serve in that way. But man, there's a lot of needs within our own community, maybe in your own neighborhood, maybe in the door, the house right next to you, that we maybe need to take a little more initiative towards. You know, the other thing I know is we're not going to eliminate homelessness in our society, but as Caleb mentioned, why don't we get involved with things like Habitat Humanity, for, who are truly building houses for people in need, and it's a, it's a legitimate effort to make an impact in our own community. I was thrilled to see the dozen or so people who got involved with us last year when we did the Blitz Bill. Thank you. We've got a church of 200. I'd love to see more. We're not going to save all the orphans in the world. But we can sure encourage adoption and support foster families. See, Christians should be on the leading edge of these efforts for the Lord's sake. And please, listen to me on this. Don't wait for the church to organize the effort. You start it. You be compelled by what God does in your own heart and then invite others to come along. Do it as a small group and figure out ways that you can contribute together in small groups making a large impact in our own community. Be committed to what's right in a world that's gone wrong. That's what it means to live as a holy priesthood in a pagan society. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that we can take words that were written thousands of years ago to an audience who lived in a culture far worse than our own and see how they applied directly to us even speaking to some of the tendencies that we have fallen into as a Christian community where it's easy for us to stand on the outside pointing fingers instead of being on the inside making a difference. And so, Lord, I just pray that in some small way, in our hearts individually, as we invite others to join collectively, that we would be a people who silence the opposition by giving them something to commend by giving, surprising them by initiating a conversation, creating a, a safe place for people to find healing and hope that is ultimately only found in you. We don't need a strategy, but we all need a Savior. And so I pray that we live by that personally and then share that corporately in the world in which we live. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
We're going to introduce some new visitors here in a moment. Before we do, just one more reminder about our missions conference, and let me give you this perspective. Missions is not something that we do. It's who we are. And so they were exactly right when they talked about it being a homecoming weekend because that's really what it feels like, family members coming back home. And they see it that way. I mean, they live for these opportunities to be rejoined again with their family after they've been literally all over the world. And so we want to be that welcoming family who embraces them as they return. But let us not forget that this is not just about supporting what they're doing. It's reminding us of what we're all responsible for. We are ministers of reconciliation. We, every one of us, are ambassadors for Christ. We are a mission people. And so that weekend is a good reminder for what we're all responsible for as God's people, which really fits right in line with what we talked about this morning.